Turn your Bibles to Luke 22, and if you're a student and maybe with us for the first time, we're in a series, The Certainty of the Savior, the Gospel of Luke, and we're in our last semester as we are coming towards the end of this gospel. Luke wrote it in order that people might know for certain that Jesus was the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God, and he carefully investigated the history, and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we have volume one in the Gospel of Luke, and his volume two is the book of Acts, also penned by the work of Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 30, Luke 22, 21 through 30, out of reverence and respect for God and his word. Let's stand for the reading of scripture, Luke 22, beginning in verse 21. But behold, this is Christ speaking, immediately following the institution of the Lord's Supper. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who is going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leaders, one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here ends the reading of the Word of God. Let's again pray. O Father, we pray through the ministry of your Word and ministry of your Spirit, you would make for us Christ more beautiful and believable. And that we might find our certain rest in Him this day. Work in and through us that we might even be conformed more to His likeness, to His ministry. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. During the pandemic, Becky and I have been re-watching a television series entitled Monk. Uh, We viewed it seven or eight years ago, and one of the benefits of getting older is you tend to forget things, and we've been able to watch almost the entire series as if it's for the first time. I don't know how many of the uh, episodes have begun, and we'd look at each other and say, have we seen this one? And then towards the end, we might remember a little bit about it. But Monk, the character, lead character, Adrian Monk, is a brilliant former police detective who was relieved because of emotional problems. He had lost his wife tragically in a car bombing, and he desperately missed his wife, Trudy. He has 312 phobias, uh, the leading phobia being germophobia. It's at the top of his list. And so Monk requires multiple meetings weekly with his counselor. Adrian Monk also has a chief rival by the name of Harold Crenshaw. He's also a patient of Dr. Kroger, the psychologist. And the two men are embroiled in a bitter dispute, jealousy, and rivalry. They're eaten up with envy, engaged in endless one-upsmanship against one another, and constantly consumed with competition and comparison with each other. It's a pathetic rivalry. 
And what's pathetic about the rivalry is that both men are pathetic figures. Yet it does not stop them in engaging in this pursuit over who is the greatest. I have no doubt that as Jesus often listened to his disciples, there were times he must have felt like he was watching an episode of Monk and of Adrian Monk and Harold Crenshaw and their dispute. And this is one of those occasions. Jesus has just finished giving the words of institution to the Lord's Supper. He's warned of betrayal. And immediately you begin to see something of the world's view of true greatness and as the disciples viewed themselves and true greatness in the eyes of of God. And so Jesus begins by reminding us that greatness in the world's eyes is self-promoting, it's self-centered, it's self-serving. After the Lord's Supper, he began to speak of his betrayal and the disciples began to assume it wasn't them. It must have been somebody else in the group. It couldn't have been me, they thought. It must have been one of these other losers. You can almost think of their, their pride and their, their sense of greatness coming through even in that discussion. And after this dispute, sure enough, a dispute over who is the greatest broke out. And sadly, this was not the first time these grown men engaged in this childish argument. There's six times in the gospel. An argument over who is the greatest is recorded. Their dispute reminds us that our self-perceived greatness isn't simply a matter of the world out there. It's a matter of the heart in here. We, We have a proneness to assume we have the right view, that we know better, that we know more. In fact, if that were the case, the whole corona deal would have been solved in March if people had just listened to us. We have this sense of self-perceived greatness. And so this question of who is the greatest breaks out. But it's such an inappropriate discussion. And Jesus draws for us how inappropriate those discussions are. The question of who is the greatest took place on the night of the Passover. The, The very night Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for His covenant people. It broke out on the night of the very first Monday, Thursday service. The night that Jesus took off his outer garment and wrapped a towel around his waist and stooped and he washed the dirty feet of his disciples. It was on the night that Jesus gave the commandment. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my Disciples. It was on that somber night, the night before the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus had barely got the words of institution out of his mouth. And they broke out into this childish dispute over who is the greatest. This whole dispute was shockingly inappropriate. The timing could not have been more tragic. And surely it's a somber reminder, a sober reminder of how prone our hearts are to slip into this mindset. To realize there's no place that's safe from this insidious pride in our hearts. If it can take place on that night in the presence of Jesus, it can take place in my life anytime and at any place. And so we just immediately begin to say, God, help us, protect us from the foolish self-deception 
of this concept of our own greatness. And so it's in the middle of this conversation, this childish argument, that Jesus interrupts their dispute and he, he draws attention to what the world's view of greatness is like. It's those who have power and prestige and fame and fortune. This is why we are so often enamored with celebrity athletes and with wealthy entrepreneurs, corporate executives, and powerful politicians, stars in the world of entertainment, because we know, do we not, intuitively, that that's greatness. We see them and we're drawn toward them, and we have this sense because that's greatness in the eyes of the world. But Jesus warned those who often pursue and attain that kind of worldly greatness often abuse their influence. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. They're in it for themselves. We're taught by the world this is true greatness. The worldly great often, though, lord it over others. They take advantage of the weak and the poor, the compromised, the positions of privilege and power, opportunities for self-promotion. Years ago, Harvard University MBA students had to fill out a survey, and the question was this, what do I hope to achieve in life after graduation? Those surveys were tallied. The number one list was money. Uh, I want fortune. I want wealth. Number two was notoriety, and number three was status. And yet not one of those students mentioned anything about being service to others and to the neighbors. Not one. Their, their goal in life is fortune and fame and power. Their plans and sometimes our plans, if we're honest, are simply self-promoting and self-serving. And so Jesus interrupts this discussion. And he's emphatic and he says, but not so with you, O Christian. And then Jesus begins to paint this stark contrast between greatness in the eyes of the world and true greatness in the eyes of God. So what is that true greatness in his eyes? True greatness in the eyes of God is self-effacing and others-serving. It's others-serving. Centered. We see that in verses 26 and 27. Look again at verse 26. Jesus emphatically begins, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Now, in that culture, the youngest were often looked down upon. We ooh and ah over the youngest in our culture. But it wasn't in the culture of the ancient Middle East. It was quite different. The youngest were considered the most unimportant. The often overlooked. Those who were given the unwanted menial tasks. And so you may remember in Israel's history where the prophet Samuel was told by God to go to the house of Jesse. Because from his family will arise the next king of Israel. And so Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he interviews one by one seven of Jesse's sons. And at the end of each interview, the Lord does not confirm any of those as the next king of Israel. 
And so Samuel asked the question of Jesse, do you have any more sons? And he basically says, oh yeah, yeah, there's, there's one more. Um, you know, he's out tending the sheep. You probably don't really need to interview him because he is the youngest. The youngest were the ones overlooked, the unimportant, those assigned the menial task. And yet what is Jesus saying here in this passage True greatness is reflected in this self-effacing posture in which I'm willing to do the dirty work, to go unnoticed, to be overlooked if my work is for the Lord. True greatness is often seen in serving meals on wheels and cutting the lawns of the elderly, helping the overburdened mother with house chores of the children, Tutoring the prisoner in preparation for his or her GED. It's the dirty jobs that no one else wants, that no one else even sees, except God. He sees. True greatness in the kingdom of God is selfless service unto others in Jesus' name. And so to elaborate this, Jesus does something interesting. He, he asks a rhetorical question, but then he goes on and he answers that rhetorical question. Look at verse 27. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Now, according to the ways of the world, that's a no-brainer. It's obvious. And so that's why Jesus answers his own rhetorical question. Is it not the one who reclines at table? Of course it is. You and I know this. Every time we go to a restaurant and a waiter or waitress comes up, we don't immediately jump up and say, oh, please, take my seat. What would you like to drink? I'll be right back with your order. You don't do that. That's ridiculous. You know who's supposed to serve who and was even more ridiculous in the ancient world. There were the wealthy who had servants, and there was no question as to who was supposed to serve who. In fact, there was often a great chasm between the master and the servants in terms of uh, economic and educational and social status. So there was no question in that culture of who's the greatest. And yet notice what Jesus does. He does something astonishing. He turns the whole cultural concept of greatness upside down on its head. And he does something astonishing. He offers himself as an example of true greatness in the eyes of God. They had been the ones reclining at table. They had been the ones being served. And Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. Literally the one who waits on tables. The Greek word is the word from which we derive the word deacon, a servant. Jesus says, I'm your deacon, I'm your table waiter, I am your servant. The one whom they refer to as rabbi, teacher, as Lord. The one whom they refer to as the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, God incarnate, was serving them. Everything at that table was upside down. Jesus was serving them. Imagine the King of glory, the Lord and creator of the universe, 
stoops in the person of Christ to serve you and to serve me. That's what Jesus has done. If you want to see true greatness in the kingdom, there it is. That ought to cause us in one sense to recoil in humility, a sense of unworthiness and profound gratitude. Because this is what Christ has done for us. But you know, the sad truth of it is that we can get up from that table, just as the disciples did, and immediately engage in those childish disputes over who is the greatest. I've often quoted from John Stott because I need to hear it in my own life over and over again, these words of, of wisdom. At every stage in the Christian development, in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. One of the things that should break the back of our prides in our hearts is seeing Jesus serve at this table. He stooped to clean the mess from our tables. And this should cause us not only to have a, a humility towards the Lord and a gratitude towards Him, but it should also cause us to view our neighbors and our fellow brothers and sisters quite differently. Not as the ones who serve us, but the ones whom Jesus has called for us to serve. Paul reminded the Philippians of that principle and that picture of Jesus when he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Consider others more significant than yourselves. And not only look out for your own interests, but look out for the interest of others. Peter reminded us of that as well when he said we're not to lord it over. You hear the echo of Jesus teaching to Peter here in this text in 1 Peter 5. So what is true greatness in the eyes of God? 19th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle wrote, The test of true greatness is this. Usefulness in the world and church. A humble readiness to do anything and put our hands to do any work, a cheerful willingness to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant, if we can promote the holiness and happiness. And what J.C. Ryle had in mind in particular was not our own holiness and happiness, but if we can use the gifts and resources that God has granted us to promote the holiness and happiness of of others. And so tweaking just a bit that Harvard MBA survey, we might ask the question like this, what do I hope to achieve in my life? No matter what age or stage in life we might be, what do we hope to achieve? And tweaking our answer in light of this passage, we might say something like this, to glorify God to, to pursue greatness by glorifying God in selfless service to others in Jesus' name. You know, the world would see that as absurd, absolutely futile. This has got to be a joke, right? Because you see, for the unbeliever, all they have to live for is the here and now. 
And so why would you throw away your hopes and your dreams and your aspirations for the happiness and holiness of of other people? That would be ridiculous. Why would the believer be willing to do that? Because we know something in Christ. Because Jesus provides the way to true greatness as well as the promise of its kingdom benefits. And we see that in verses 28 through 30. First, Jesus provides the way to true greatness through his own person and work. What do I mean by that? Not only does he offer himself as an example of true greatness in selfless service, by taking off his outer garment and wrapping a towel around his waist and stooping to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. Not only does he do so by waiting on them and serving their table and cleaning up after them, but Jesus does more. He provides real life-changing redemption, not just an example. How does he do this? Look at verse 29. When Jesus said, And I assign to you, As my father assigned to me a kingdom, he's using covenantal language. The verb assign is a word used to establish a covenant. You could legitimately read this. I have covenanted with you, dear church. As my father has covenanted with me a kingdom. And why not? Jesus has just proclaimed before his disciples at the Lord's Supper. This is the cup of the new what? The new covenant in my blood. Jesus is making it abundantly clear his death on the cross was not just an example, but he was providing an atoning sacrifice for his people in which we might be cleansed and forgiven, in which we might be made new from the inside out, in which there is hope. That therefore, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And Jesus comes in and he begins to transform us who were selfish and self-focused. And we have hope for real change. You don't know how crucial that is in marriage. 45-year testimony, how wonderful. A little dying to self, I assume, took place. As God begins to work in us in marriages and as we're single and as we are involved in Christ's community in the church, we need that radical change in which we were once so self-centered that all of a sudden we realize that Christ is calling us to be others-centered. And the power comes from the power of the cross. His blood of the covenant provides forgiveness from sins through the cross and the transforming power of the cross for his people. And that is our hope, real hope for me, real hope for you, for significant change in our lives. A transformation from selfishness in sin to selflessness in service. A transformation to true greatness in the eyes of God. But second, Jesus not only provides the atoning power for real transformation, but he brings about the benefits of this kingdom to those who follow him in faith and in the pathway of true greatness. Do you notice what he said in verse 29? You are those who've stayed with me in my trials. Now, if there was ever a gracious overstatement in Scripture, here it is. 
He's looking at his disciples and said, you're the ones that, that stayed with me through thick and thin, knowing that in a matter of hours, every single one of them would cut and run. But thankfully, that running was temporary. And they came back after the resurrection. And Jesus began to work in them. But why would he say, you are the ones who withstood trials? Because Jesus, again, was reminding them and reminding us that following Jesus in this kind of service is costly. There will be trials and tribulations and persecutions. You will be overlooked. You will be not appreciated. You will be assigned menial tasks that nobody else wants. And Jesus is saying, so if you want to follow me, then take up your cross daily and come after me. Their great cost. If you and I are in the kingdom and in this Christian life for the perceived benefits of a life of ease, a personal peace and affluence, that somehow now because Jesus is on my team, I'm going to experience all these wonderful things in life without trials, you and I will be sorely disappointed. As one commentator put it wisely, those who receive the gospel for its benefits will abandon it for its costs. But I might add, those who count the cost will receive benefits beyond our imagination in full. That's what Jesus promises here. Though the world may overlook you, the Father's eyes upon his children. And so we read those benefits in verse 30. Look at verse 30 again. As Jesus reminds them of these benefits of the kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes. Eating and drinking at the king's table is a picture of rich fellowship. Of uninterrupted joy-filled relationship. Of uninterrupted union and communion with Christ the King himself. Sitting at his table and feasting throughout all eternity upon the grace of of God in Christ. But did you notice in his promise there's not only a table, there are also thrones. There, there's not just a table at which to eat, but thrones upon which to reign. Imagine for a moment the unnoticed, unappreciated, overlooked by the world followers of Jesus will be crowned at the coronation of the king's servants one day we will somehow in some way some form sit on thrones i believe this is a picture of participating in the rule and reign of jesus in the new heavens and the new earth we, we may never taste fully of that kind of of glory in this life because we live in a fallen world but one day jesus says bank your life on it it's yours there's not just a table at which to sit. There's thrones upon which to rule, to participate in the reign of Christ. But you know, in a very real sense, we don't have to wait until glory to participate in the rule and reign of Jesus. Jesus is saying in this passage, we can begin today. Today we have the responsibility and the privilege of covenant life. Life in Christ, life around the table of the king as we commune together as a covenant community of God's people, learning to serve one another, 
loving one another deeply from the heart. We don't have to wait to glory to involve ourselves in humble, selfless service to desperately needing, needy world. So followers of Jesus, what's he saying? In deep humility, keep scrubbing, keep cleaning, keep waiting on tables, keep serving the poor and the widow and the orphan, keep loving the least of these and longing for the lost to come to know the Savior, all these things in Jesus' name. For this is true greatness in the eyes of God. And Jesus says in verse 30 that one day, though the world may never recognize you, though the world may continue to see you with disparaging sight, Jesus is reminding us one day your coronation of grace will come. You will feast at the table of the king. You will rule and participate in the reign of Christ the King. You'll sit upon thrones. I don't understand it all. Perhaps that's why Paul says, No mind, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor mind conceived of what God has planned for those who love Him. But I know there's a table, and I know there are thrones, and we will participate in the new heavens and the new earth, in the rule and reign of of Jesus. And let me say something as I close. If you're not in Christ, I want to remind you there's a place at the table for you. There is a place for you to come into the kingdom as you trust in the Savior, the King of grace. His atoning sacrifice will cleanse you of all sins. His promise is sealed in no less than the blood of the covenant will be secure for you. And you too, along with all of God's people, will celebrate one day in this great coronation of grace as we gather with the King of grace himself. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you turned the world upside down with our understanding of true greatness. And so I pray that you would grant me and grant us daily repentance of our self-focused, self-assurance, self-centered lives. And through the power of your blood, you would not only forgive us, but through the power of the cross, you would transform us. That we would consider others more significant than ourselves. That we would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That you, Lord Jesus, remind us that you're not simply our example but you indeed are the means and the motive of true greatness through the power of the cross. Transform us for your glory. Use us by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.